The first reading today comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 35 to 38. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. This reading comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what we are getting. This next reading comes from Luke 23, verses 44 to 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. But all those who knew him stood at a distance watching these things. When something big happens, we want explanations. And if we can't get explanations, we will take all the information that we can possibly get. We'll talk it over and over. We want to make some sense out of what is nonsensical. We want to understand things that, in essence, defy comprehension. But sometimes those efforts to explain or clarify take on a rather desperate tone. Grasping at straws, we embrace supposed explanations that are rather far-fetched. The death of Jesus, for all those that knew him, was something big. In fact, it was a cataclysmic event that shattered their world. Their hopes for their future deflated right along with Jesus' lungs. As he exhaled his last breath, so also the air rushed out of the balloons of their dreams. I can imagine the conversation between the disciples. Someone should have seen this coming. Maybe, maybe we could have prevented it. We shouldn't have let him come to Jerusalem. If only. Woulda, coulda, shoulda didn't at the very least 
they would need to talk about this terrible tragedy, rehearsing and rehashing that dark Friday over and over again, whether huddled in an upper room or wandering aimlessly to Emmaus, the confused disciples couldn't stop talking about it. They were not alone because the world has not stopped talking about it since. And while there are numerous far-fetched explanations, there are also reasonable accounts. All the gospel writers give their reasonable account of it. And as we are going through Luke, that's where we will obviously focus. You'll remember way back at the start of Luke's gospel, where Luke informs Theophilus that he has studied various accounts and has done careful investigation and so is writing his account so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Luke didn't want the far-fetched to overshadow the truth of the matter. And so the account that we have from Luke goes from one individual, one set of circumstances, one individual who knew Jesus to the next as Jesus relentlessly journeys towards Jerusalem and in heading in that direction is also heading towards crucifixion, an instrument of torture, the cross, and what we now call Good Friday. But what does it all mean? Many people who are far better thinkers than I have come up with a plethora of theological theories. Here are the top seven that came to mind. The moral influence theory, the ransom theory, the Christus Victor theory, the satisfaction theory, the penal substitution theory, the governmental theory, the scapegoat theory, and there's a whole bunch more that aren't so well known. Each one shines a little light on the deep mystery that is the cross. But each one is limited, as is our understanding of the enormity of this day, Good Friday. Yet no matter how theologically astute these theories may be, we are not saved by theories. We are saved by Jesus. Did you hear that? We are saved by Jesus. Simply put, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to take away the sins of the world, to put us at peace with ourselves, with one another, and to bridge the gap between us and God. The reason that this was necessary is the plain and simple fact, friends, that we are broken. We battle with our brokenness, and more often than not, we lose the battle. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can know what it means. We can even know how it feels to be right with God, to be right with yourself and to be right with others. We can make peace with our past. We can experience joy in the moment and we can have hope for the future. That's what Jesus came to do. Remember back in Luke 3 when John was bapt- uh, Jesus was baptised by John Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Confirmation that what Jesus is doing is what God had initiated. 
In the same account in, in John's gospel, John the Baptist, seeing Jesus coming towards him, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Worthy is the Lamb. For the first century Jew who heard these words, two images would have immediately come to mind. The first image, of course, is the Passover lamb, the one that was sacrificed for that once-a-year occasion that we heard at the, the commencements of this service. Luke 22, Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And the second image is the sacrificial lamb of the temple. Every morning and every evening a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. This was commanded back in Exodus. The disciples of Jesus had absolutely no trouble understanding the meaning of these blood sacrifices. However, the idea of blood sacrifice may be difficult for us to understand today. We may even see it as barbaric. But I'm fairly sure that we understand the idea of restitution, restoration, making things right. So I want you to imagine a society in which there is no restitution. Imagine how chaotic it would be. You could take something from someone and never be required to give it back. You could steal from your neighbours and never face any kind of consequences. There would be no debt to pay to society and your misdeeds for your misdeeds because there is no restitution. You could abuse and mistreat people and oppress them and enslave them and nobody would hold you accountable. You could even kill anyone you took a notion to kill because there is no such thing as consequences and no such thing as restitution. No society could ever function that way. It would eventually implode. Everyone knows that. For some reason though, Many think that even though no society should ever allow its citizens to live in a culture without consequences, they think God should. They think that God is being arbitrary and ruthless when people's actions have consequences. They say, if God is love, why can't he just let people do what they want to do? Why does he have to punish people who do wrong? And then almost in the same breath, they say, and why does he allow so much evil in the world? Do you get that? They want people, God to let people do whatever they want to do with no consequences and they want there to be no evil in the world. The dots don't quite connect. So here's the plain unvarnished truth. We are all sinners. We have all offended a holy God. We have all done things that should not, we should not have done and we have all left undone those things that we should have done and I suspect that everyone here knows that. My intention at this moment is not to try to convince you that you are a sinner. That's really just something you can recognise for yourself. The problem is though that some people can't see it in themselves. The way people see it is this, that the problem is not me, it's the rest of the world. In fact, if everyone was more like me, this would be a better place. People who have that mentality often go through, through life wreaking havoc on everyone around them and they do it by pointing their finger at someone every step of the way. It's his fault. It's her fault. 
It's God's fault. It's never my fault. I should be allowed to do whatever I want to do. Every person in the world needs to encounter that moment of truth there and experience that wake-up call to when they understand the truth and come to their senses. So here's the question. What's wrong with the world? Here's the answer. I am. And that's the truth of the matter. Here's the problem that every human being must confront. I am a sinful person and I have done things that I can never make right and there will be consequences for my behaviour and restitution must be made, but I cannot do it. You know, in all my years of experience, and they're getting a few now, I've never met a person who is serious about living a deeper life who haven't come to this conclusion. I need mercy. I need grace. I need a saviour. So this is what Jesus' death means to us. When he died on the cross, every sin you ever committed, past, present and future, every ugly thing you did and every decent thing you avoided doing, every hateful word you said and every filthy thing you thought, every heart you broke and every spirit you crushed, every weak person you took advantage of and every good person you attempted to sabotage, every time you turned your back on someone in need and every time you exploited a situation to your own advantage, every time you cut someone down to size and every time you tried to puff up yourself, every time you lied, every time you stole, every time you looked at a person like they were just an object... And every time you shook your fist at God as if you know more about the world than God could possibly know. Every sin in your past, every sin in your present and every sin in your future was placed upon Jesus as he hung on that cruel Roman cross in a dump on the outskirts of town. And while he hung on that cross, the restitution that I, you, we owe for the consequences of our actions that we cannot possibly make right, he made right. He was like a spotless lamb paying the price for a sinful world. Somehow, Jesus' death made things right. Jesus Christ came into the world to die on the cross for our sins. And if we think our sins are insignificant or even non-existent, we will have a hard time understanding what this death really means. But if you have ever had cause to despair uh, over who you've been or the things you've done, full of grace and mercy and compassion and love now demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrifice was and is so complete and Jesus' love was and is so deep that you and I can experience that grace, that mercy, that compassion, that love right here, right now. So the life we live today is entirely, folks, entirely about this God's grace, our response. If we today miss this opportunity to respond to God's grace, then quite simply, God help us. This is Good Friday. 
I hate this day. I love this day. I hate this day for the suffering that my sins cause the one who loves me unconditionally. I love this day because God so loved the world that God gave. God's grace is Jesus Christ. How will you respond? As the worship team returns to the stage, please pray with me. Jesus Christ, we are stripped bare by your suffering. You see our dreams, our demons and the secrets we keep even from ourselves. Forgive all that needs to be forgiven. Heal all that needs to be healed. Awaken all the good that sleeps in us. Banish all the fears that paralyze us. Put the power of your cross in our lives forever and clothe us with hope and love. Amen.